Welcome to Wisconsin Law in Action, a remotely recorded podcast where we discuss new and forthcoming scholarship at University of Wisconsin Law School professors. I'm your host, Chris Turner, and my guest today is Professor Stephen Wright, co-director of the Wisconsin Innocence Project. In addition to his position in the law school, where he has also taught criminal law and appellate advocacy, Professor Wright also lectures in the creative writing program. Why do I bring that up? It's because Professor Wright is here to discuss his debut novel, The Coyotes of Carthage, which was published earlier this year and has been getting rave reviews ever since. Professor Wright, thank you for taking the time to join the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to share the novel and, of course, an opportunity to reach out to the law community, especially the students who I haven't been able to see in quite a while and who I miss a lot. Same with me. I miss seeing their faces every day. Uh, Before we discuss your novel, first let's hear about uh, your background in both the legal and creative writing fields. Sure. So, you know, I was one of those people who was a little bit uncertain when I went to law school. I didn't completely know what I wanted to do. I sort of had an idea that I wanted to be a writer. But I think, you know, the more I sort of talked to people, and especially when I got the input of my family, the law felt like it was a lot more certain path that, you know, you can find a job as a lawyer, but you may not be able to find a job as a writer. So I went to law school. um, I went to Washington University in St. Louis, and it was a great experience. I met some people there who not only changed the way that I sort of think and look about the law, but I met some friends who continue to be very dear and important to me even to today. Uh, But like I said, during law school, you know, I was the guy who basically took classes just based upon what interests me, not necessarily towards any specific goal. And so when I graduated, or when I was in my 3L preparing to graduate, I really didn't have a very good vision for what I was going to do. And fortunately, my professor who uh, taught conflicts of law pulled me aside and said, you know, you, you have some decent grades, you've done okay, why don't you think about clerking? And so um, I, I I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't even know what a clerk did, but all I knew is I had to write a cover letter and get some letters of recommendations and get a uh, and get some transcripts together. And I was very fortunate to clerk for a judge in the United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit, uh, Judge Smith, who's now the chief of the Eighth. Uh, I mean, it was a transformative experience uh, working in that chambers. I think it's fair to say it serves as sort of the foundation of my understanding of both the federal courts and the role of courts in our society and both the limits and the power of appellate courts. And so after that experience, I was very fortunate. I was hired as an honors attorney for the United States Department of Justice doing voting rights. And I was there, you know, it's always hard to say when voting rights isn't particularly important, but I was there during the surge of voter ID. I was there during the surge of uh, uh, the Tea Party. I was there during the surge of uh, redistricting. And so you got to see a lot of, you got to learn and see a lot about politics. You know, like I said, I had always wanted to be a writer. And so something that happened is while I was at the Department of Justice, just by chance, the campus of John Hopkins University was like two blocks away. And I was literally just walking past one day and they had and they were advertising. They had an open house for their writing program. And so I I I went in and I learned a lot and I remembered how much I missed writing, how much I missed creative writing and writing fiction in particular. And so I started so I would work at the DOJ in the day. And then at night, I would uh, go to Hopkins and I would study writing. And so at the end of that Hopkins experience, it just so happened that it was around 2012. 
I think Governor Romney had secured the Republican nomination and we knew it was going to be Governor Romney against President Obama. I thought it was a good time just to step aside. Um, you know, there was a lull in the a lull in the election process, so my cases could be easily transferred to other people. And I wanted to pursue writing. So that's why I came to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which, as I'm sure you know, has a pretty prestigious program. It's often ranked in the top five programs of the country. And I got to work with some extraordinary writers, uh, Judy Mitchell, Jesse Lee Kerchival, Ron Kuka, Lori Moore, and Linda Berry. And, you know, as strong as that influence was when I worked with Judd Smith in shaping my understanding of the law and the federal courts, that experience here at the University of Wisconsin MFA program shaped my understanding of what is good writing, what is good storytelling, why we tell certain stories and why we don't tell others. And so when I graduated that program, I, I was working on the novel and I was fortunate enough to get a job at the law school with the Innocence Project. And we're happy to have you here. It's been great working with you over the past, what is it now, five, six years? That you've been exactly, here? yeah. I think we're about to hit our six-year anniversary any day now, so it's been very exciting. That's just amazing to hear the different career twists and turns that everyone takes and how important that these moments in time appear to be to everybody, and that's just what happened to you. Yeah. You know, my my life has largely been a series of just sort of coincidences and happenstance, to be perfectly honest. Like, uh, you know, I... I would not have clerked if my conflicts of law professor hadn't pulled me aside and said, hey, I think you'd be competitive, right? And so I did. Um, you know, I, I applied to the U.S. Department of Justice honors program sort of on a whim. Uh, but you're right, just walking past Hopkins at that time ended up being, you know, it's those type of twists that actually when you read them in fiction, you wouldn't believe them, right? Like, you, you know, I... I, I I, I listen to myself and I think like I'm a literary equivalent of Forrest Gump, that I just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Um, but, you know, that experience also very much shapes the way that I engage with students. I tell them, you know, a lot of the things that will go feed into your success might very well be out of your control. And so when the students start getting really worked up and, you know, really, oh, my God, I need to take these six classes and, oh, my God, I need to do law review and moot court and the clinic and take these doctrinal classes because I want to graduate early. Sometimes I'm just I, I just sort of remind them that, you know, fate plays as big of a hand sometimes as planning. On top of it all, I think you now have a good title for your autobiography thanks to that answer. Yeah. Coincidences and happenstances. Well, thank you. Uh, you just give me a cut of 10% of your bio and we'll call it even. <laughs> so moving on to your book, what inspired you to write Coyotes of Carthage? Yeah, so I was, um, like I said, I was here at the University of Wisconsin in the MFA program. And for anybody who knows, that MF, knows anything about MFA programs, the sort of unit of pedagogy, the way that we learn to write stories and read stories is often the short story. We don't spend a lot of time engaging with the novel in, in, in most programs. Um, and so part of what happens, part of the natural evolution, I think, of every MFA student is they start writing stories and they start getting longer and longer and longer and more complicated. And so I was at a point where I was three semesters in, so somewhere around January 2014, and I knew that I wanted to at least flex and try a novel. And so I was talking to my mentors, the people that I mentioned in, in the writing program, Ron Kuka, Judy Mitchell, uh, Jesse Lee Kirchable, Linda Berry, Lori Moore, and you know all of them very much had a lot of the same advice, which is write a novel 
that only you can write. Write a novel that brings your unique perspective to the table, which is good advice for everyone. And so I, I sort of looked around and I wondered, you know, what could I offer that perhaps most fiction writers couldn't? And I fell back on my experience at the Department of Justice doing voting rights. And so I started drafting that first novel, that first chapter, probably in January 2012. And it took a long time to figure out. First chapters, I think, for many writers are often very difficult because they have to do so much, right? They have to introduce the characters. They have to set the tone. They have to set the voice. They sort of have to engage the plot. And so, um, you know, there was a lot of writing and polishing and rewriting and repolishing for that. Um, and so over time, um, you know, I started to invest more of my experience, not only with voting rights, but with criminal law. And, you know, that was sort of the formula that gave birth to the Coyotes of Carthage. What kind of parallels do you see between writing fiction and writing for le in writing legal briefs or writing academic pieces, if any? So I think there's a lot. I mean, you know, I, I'm... I'm largely influenced, once again, by my experience as, as a clerk. And I can remember reading briefs that were just horrible. And they're, they're often horrible for different reasons, right? So sometimes they have too much jargon. Sometimes they're just poorly edited and written. Sometimes they, a lot of briefs I feel sometimes very much struggle to articulate what their point is. They sort of, they get close, but they can't find the precise language to articulate what they're appealing or, or what the problem was, right? And so a, the, the, a lot of tools that you learn in an MFA program, I think, end up being transferable. And one of them, of course, is precision of language, saying what you mean and meaning what you say. There's also some other things that need to be said about keeping the reader's attention. You know, I appreciate that, you know, here in Wisconsin, the judges on the Court of Appeals, some of whom I've gotten to know, they only have one clerk. And so they're reading two, three, four sets of briefs every day, five, six days a week, 52 weeks a year. And so, you know, part of what you hear from many of the judges when they come to visit or, or when I've talked to them is that they, they like briefs that just sort of get to the point, that sort of say, you know, these are the important facts. These are the important cases you need to know. This is how this is the logic of our argument, right? And in some ways, novels and short stories sort of work in the same way, right? You have to decide what is important, what am I going to share, and how am I going to share it? You know, I think people often say things like, you know, learning how to write fiction is important because you need to learn to build sympathy for the client, the same you build sympathy for the character. I tend to disagree with that analysis. I think judges aren't your usual audience. Every judge I know, especially one who's been an appellate judge for more than two or three years, is pretty hardened against any type of sympathetic argument. <laughs> but, you know, the elements of making the brief readable, making the brief interesting, making the brief engageable, I think are skills that I picked up in my creative writing classes. Is there any set way you go about creative writing or writing fiction? So writing fiction, uh, you know, at any given moment, I have several what we call craft elements in our mind. And when we talk about craft elements, we're talking about characters and setting and plots and voice. And they're sort of like free-floating atoms in my head. And every once in a while, they will come together and there's the big bang of it, right? Like the right character that you've been thinking about meets with the right, right um, 
uh, meets with the right plot, meets with the right voice. Um, and so all of a sudden it just sort of smashes and then you say, oh my goodness, I've got an idea for a book. And when that sort of happens, like you just can't keep me away from a computer, not necessarily that I'm going to write the entire story, but all of a sudden the outline of it becomes clear. All of a sudden I know, okay, this is this is what this story is about, right? I I think almost every writer has the story of starting too early. You think you've got the novel, you think you've got the idea, you start writing, maybe you get a thousand words in, and then you recognize there's no story here. Like, yeah, he's an interesting guy, but he's basically sitting at a dinner table for two hours, and nobody wants to read that, right? And so, you know, part, part of part of what I have tried to get better at over the years is just sort of recognizing when you should sit down and when you should stop. That sounds like a very difficult, like it would take years to come to that conclusion to say, all right, this is a thread worth pursuing or a rabbit hole worth going down. Or I have a guy sitting at a dinner table for two hours with no story to tell. That might sound easy to say on our podcast here, but it's not like something that does take time as a writer to get to that point. You know, it takes a lot of skill, but you know, the funny thing is in some ways it also, it also is one of those skills that ends up being transferable to uh, appellate advocacy oftentimes, right? So, I mean, the number of times, one of the great pleasures of working at the law school is obviously working with students. And, you know, I mean, I, I know it's cliche, but our students really are the best in the world. They're smart and they're earnest and they're hardworking and they love to be there. But what is sometimes the hardest part about teaching the students is teaching them that not everything is appealable, that they might see an injustice in the record, that they might see something that really, really upset them, something that strikes at the heart of their very sense of just sort of procedural fairness. And then you tell them, you know, you're really worked up about this. I know you want to write a brief about this. But then they go and they sit down and they can't find any case law to sustain it, or they can't quite articulate in the statement of facts why what they're concerned about was so unjust, right? And it's, in some ways, it's the same problem, right? You're sitting down ready to write, you're eager to write, you're excited to write, but you don't really have anything to write, right? The brief won't write, the story won't write. And so part of what we try to do is we try to teach the students, you know, don't try to write a brief where you're alleging clear error the entire time, right? To try to write a brief that engages issues of law. You know, this perceived unfairness, this judge may have said something that, you know, probably shouldn't have, the judge probably shouldn't have said. But, you know, the, the Supreme Court isn't going to overturn a mur murder conviction based upon this, this perceived slight, right? And so... When I work with students, I often try to talk with them a great deal before we actually sit down to write, right? Not only do we do outlines, but we just sort of try to put into words what they want to put in, onto, in, onto the page. And I think the same thing holds true of fiction. So many times, you know, even when I'm teaching creative writing, students have a great idea, but then you, when you sit down and you try to outline or you put it into words, it just doesn't work. Right. They're maybe trying to write a story that's too broad or make an argument that's too, they're, they're, riled, they're fired up for an argument or for a story, but it's just everything is in clear error. You got It's got to be more specific than that. Or my story is a very broad, sprawling one. Well, you got to make that story so people can understand it in some way. And once again, that was an experience that I sort of learned clerking. 
um, you know, the judge that I clerked for, uh, the, I think it's fair to say that the Eighth Circuit tends to be a little bit more conservative than the other courts. And so I would read arguments and I would read things that would really get underneath my skin, you know, especially some of the sentencing cases, especially some of the immigration cases. And you would just look at them and say, you know, this is just wrong. And what sometimes I think is particularly frustrating to appellate clerks is like your circuit has already pretty much defined their position on it, but another circuit, the Ninth Circuit or the Sixth Circuit or the D.C. Circuit, has also decided and decided it another way, right? And then you're like, this poor guy or this poor person is subject to this sentence or this immigration proceeding or whatever just because he or she was in the wrong state. Um, and so, you know, you just sort of have to learn to accept those, accept those constraints as part of your storytelling or as part of your appellate brief writing. So what was the most difficult part of writing this novel? I know it's going to sound silly, but literally writing the novel. Like, the novel, you know, the the, the novel is about 320 pages, which is about 80,000 words. The original novel was about 150,000 words. It was twice as long. And I shared it with some of my mentors and my readers, and it was unanimous that they enjoyed it, but it was just too long. It just needed to be slashed. So I had to cut basically a 600-page novel into a 320-page uh, novel. Um, you know, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I try to be fairly disciplined in my writing. I would say for about four, four and a half years, I wrote every night for about two hours, at least six days a week. Uh, I normally took Sundays off. Um, but, you know, that I think that ended up being uh, a part of the challenge. You know, one of the unique challenges I think that life sort of threw at you is I, I was writing this novel. So I, 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 I was very lucky to receive my position at the law school, you know, four or five months after uh, I graduated from the MFA program. It wasn't too long at all. And um, I was completely unprepared for the darkness that was sort of going to enter your life, right? Innocence cases are just, just full of trauma. Somebody has been hurt. Uh, you know, a victim has been sexually assaulted, murdered, battered, you know, whatever. And that person suffered some real pain. Obviously, their life was destabilized. Their community might have been destabilized. Their family was definitely destabilized. Then you add onto it the extra indignity that the wrong person may have gone to jail for it. And that, too, has its own type of injury, a destabilization of that person's life, of their family, their community. And so the, the novel sometimes gets described as a satire. I don't know if I would say it's a satire, but I do admit there's a lot of humor in it. But there was a period for three or four months when I first started working at the Wisconsin Innocence Project where there was no sort of humor in my life. It was just <laughs> those cases. And so the pages, when I sat down to write, were tremendously dark. They were just unforgivingly depressing. And I sort of recognized that that wasn't the book that I wanted this to be. It wasn't really the person that I wanted to be. And so part of what I had to learn to do was to separate the cases from sort of the subconscious part of your mind that engages in creativity to help you produce a novel. And that took a lot of time. That sounds very difficult because I feel like even when you're writing creatively, you're drawing from real life in many ways. I would I'd have to say that's a pretty safe bet. And what you knew at the time was uh, 
reflected in the writing of very dark, <laughs> serious matter. And it, I agree with you. I don't know if I would call it a satire. My read of it wasn't as a satire, but it had humorous parts to it. I, it read to me as more of a um, stinging <laughs> judgment on the current state of affairs in some ways, which and yeah. which rolls into my next question about how the novel made me mad in some in many ways. And I think that was your intent. I don't think I'm gonna make you mad by saying that I was mad at some of the instances in the in the story. So does writing a story with an ending that readers may not like purposefully so make your process more difficult? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Um, you know, the novel, first and foremost, is designed to engage and to some degree to entertain, right? I wanted people to read it. I wanted it I wanted for people who like books to to want to read it. And I want to people who use books as an alternative to, say, Netflix or Amazon Prime or television to consider that this might be as worthy of their time as anything else, right? Books are obviously a huge investment. You know, there's several movies worth in, the, in terms of time. And so that was the primary goal. The second goal was to educate people about the importance of dark money and the importance of local elections. And so those really were my primary drivers. And so, you know, I think I was able to sort of keep that balancing act for most of the book. Um, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of people, uh, you know, the, the greatest debate that I see online these days about the book is the ending. The, the majority of the people, I think, liked it, but then they're just like, you know, Steve, that ending didn't work for me. And I can sort of respect that. But, you know, from my point of view, I was, I was trying to wrap up a book that had an enormously complex plot and enormously, in my opinion, complex character. You know, when we meet Dre, not only is he still suffering from some trauma from his previous incarceration, his brother is on his deathbed, his fiance has left him. He's alienated his boss. He's alienated his friends. He's about to get fired. And now he's being sent to a rural community in South Carolina where he may be the only black person from house. He's in a, he's so, in a very tough you know, spot. I didn't, yeah, he's in a tough spot. So I didn't anticipate that the ending at any point would be able to wrap up all those things. And so then the question becomes how many of those things that do you end up wrapping up? And I think, you know, reasonable people can disagree, can, reasonable people can agree and disagree on whether I got that number right. And I will add in that I found that the book was definitely worth two or three movies worth of my time. It was very, it was, you definitely hit the mark. It was entertaining and, and informative, especially with the Citizens United backgrounds to just fill in a little bit about the dark money aspect. I think was very helpful to kind of see how it would work on the ground in a, what would be kind of a usual local election in some ways. Well, thank you. You know, one of the things that I, I don't know if people always appreciate, or at least they probably did not appreciate as much before the pandemic, is how important our local elections are. Obviously, now we're seeing it more than ever, right? Especially here in Wisconsin, when the Wisconsin Supreme Court says that pandemic decisions have to be made on the local level. We're starting to learn more that, you know, who you elect for county manager or county clerk or county sheriff can have huge implications for the life of individual citizens. And likewise, we're learning from the Black Lives Matter and the murder of Mr. Uh, Floyd that who you elect to be your judge and your district attorney and your sheriff also matter tremendously. And so 
I started writing the book in 2014, and like I said, it was largely based upon my experience at the Department of Justice. A lot of our cases in the Department of Justice are very, very local. You know, yes, we do occasionally statewide suits or statewide discrimination suits, but most of the the time the problems with elections are at your local county level. So we would go into these counties and figure out why democracy had just broken down. Why was it acting in the small pocket or the small bubble in a manner that was inconsistent with our constitutional norms and vision. And there's oftentimes lots of different reasons. Sometimes the county just doesn't have the money to pull off a good election. Sometimes it's explicit discrimination. Sometimes it's implicit discrimination. A lot of times, more and more, I think people are more willing to accept partisanship as an element of why perhaps one group isn't being uh, isn't being included in our elections. But one of the things that I learned is that local elections, you know, most local elections are, are, aren't paid attention to. People can run for a local county office on a $1,000, $2,000 budget. I can't tell you the number of librarians who ran for school board who stowed away $50 from their paycheck every month and then ran at the, ran at the end of the election cycle with $2,000, you know, $2,500 or whatever just so that they could buy yard signs and just so they could have a barbecue right before election day to get people out to vote. And so we have these offices. We know that people don't vote in them. We know that they can be tremendously powerful. We know that, you know, they're often uncontested. And then the question becomes, what happens if somebody with a lot of money comes in? What if a Walmart or an Amazon or some type of corporation comes in and they're willing to use a fraction of a million dollars or sometimes multiple million dollars to ensure that their policy is advanced. I think most people see that and they would agree that's not a fair fight. And so my book tried to illustrate from the perspective of the bully what that fair fight might look like. And just to expand on the synopsis of the plot a little bit in case any of the listeners out there haven't read the book briefly, uh, Aunt Dre, who we mentioned previously, is working basically for one of these corporations in rural South Carolina to try and swing the election their way so they can purchase some public land at a relatively cheap, or it will be sold to them at a relatively cheap cost where they can develop it and do their own thing. And um, Dre gets into some arguably dirty tactics to do so as we get in there. And he's, as, we, as uh, Professor Wright mentioned, he's at a very dark point in his life. So a lot of things going on with him personally as a character and writ large in the campaign itself, which the book shines a great light on and makes a very entertaining story. But I need to know, what was your, who was your favorite character to write and who was your least favorite? <laughs> so, you know, the, the book is written from Dre's perspective, right? And so Dre is always in your head. Like, you know, the book, the story is Dre's story. He's in every single chapter on every single page, like it follows Dre. So, you know, there's no, you know, Dre sort of becomes your second self in some ways. But my favorite character was probably Brendan. Um, you know, Brendan is sort of his sidekick who, uh, who, who helps him work these elections. And, you know, I, I, I've been fairly open, especially with my students, that Brendan was largely inspired by my students here at the University of Wisconsin, right? Brendan's in his early 20s. He's smart. He's well-educated. He wants to do good in the world. He's earnest. He's hardworking. He's loyal. But he still sort of has a lot to learn about the world. He still needs just the experience that sort of comes with age. And so there are a couple lines from Brendan in there that I've told my students I just completely took from conversations with them. 
Like I, I warn my students regularly, oh, that's a good line that's going in a book. They laugh as if I'm joking, but I'm sure the ones who read it will recognize, oh my God, I, I told that to Professor Ryder Steve and now it's in a book. Be careful what you say to an author. You never know what they'll put in the book. You never, there's no, you know, there's, there's no copywriting a conversation, right? Um, so, uh, yeah. You know, the, the most difficult story, the most difficult character to write. Uh, you know, I don't know if I, I would say that I had a difficult character to write. You know, there are certain moments in the book that sort of stand out um, that that sort of break your heart. You know, I, I think, um, you know, I, I tend to believe that uh, novels sometimes suffer if, the writer becomes either too fond or too angry at one character. And so I think readers tend to forgive fondness. I, I suspect that people will read this book and see that I was very fond of Britain. But, you know, if you're mad at a character, all you ever want to do is just stomp on that character, right? You, you have the power of God and the ability to bring about karmic wrath upon any character. And then that sometimes just has the... Um, you know, the backwards effect of, of... Takes you out of a story. Exactly. It takes you out of the story, and it has the backwards effect of making the person you hate sometimes feel like they're like you're being unfair to them. So, um, you know, the, the the character that I wouldn't necessarily say um, I was angry at or broken the heart is, is there's a, there's a woman, Miss Boshears, um, in the book. And, you know, I... I I think she sort of sometimes reflects an ambivalence that we see a lot of in, in, in politics, right? So she knows what Dre is doing is wrong. She knows that in particular Dre has a strategy that is harming people that she loves and people that are a big part of her life, but she sort of remains silent. And she has a lot of personal reasons and they may be fair reasons to remain silent, but I think we sort of, I think we see a lot in society, people who just sort of sit on the fence when they see things are wrong, um, as even even under their lens or their definition of what is wrong. And sometimes I think the rest of us get frustrated with those individuals. And so I would probably put Miss Boshears in that category. Mm -hmm. It felt Miss Boshears felt like a very realistic character to me for that exact reason. I could tell you could almost you could feel that you would know these people at some place or you've read about them in other ways. And I, that's why I enjoy reading about her and her obvious conflict that she felt in a situation where she had a personal stake and a financial stake that were at odds in the situation. Yeah. And that felt very real to me because everyone knows someone or has been in a situation like that. And I'd like that really helped flesh out her character and the story in of itself. Another thing I need to know, when I was, we had already set up this podcast ahead of time, and I was reading the book, finishing it up, and towards the very end, Dre makes a derogatory, not derogatory, but a mention of how he finds podcasts to be more like narcissistic. <laughs> so I need to know if you think Dre would enjoy this, our podcast, this discussion. <laughs> he he probably would. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think about Dre every so often whenever I do anything. Uh, you know, that's just what happens when you live in them. Yeah, I think the line is what Dre thinks that podcasts are the ramblings of narcissists, uh, something like that. Um, you know, I, one of the things about writing a book is that there are lines in there um, 
that even as I say it now, that tickles me. But when you're writing it alone at your desk, and I literally wrote the book right behind me the entire time, you never know whether it's going to connect, right? You never know whether the edgy joke is going to be offensive rather than funny. You never know whether people are just going to roll their eyes. And so, you know, there's a couple lines every once in a while. Uh, and that that one has been pointed out by a couple, I think, of, of the interviews I've done, especially for the podcasters. Uh but yes, I, I think he normally thinks the podcasts are, are probably the ravings of, of narcissists. So, it's hard, to, dis- hard um, to disagree with him, to be honest. <laughs> it's hard to disagree with that, right? But in all fairness, a novel is a rave is 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 a raving of a narcissist, right? Like I'm going to demand three hours of your time so I can slap you around about dark money, uh, dark money and politics. Hey, so, I agreed to it um, and I stuck with it, so it wasn't. It, I was an agreeable participant and enjoyed. Thank you, and I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, going back to Brennan really quickly, uh, he felt like a very audience surrogate uh, character to me in some ways, where it was a nice introduction for those that may not be as familiar with uh, dark money or the way that sometimes elections can turn ugly on the inside that the outside may not be seen as much, which I really appreciated because even though I work in the law school and, and, and because of that I have a passing understanding of election law and things, that to see it at a, in a, a more real portrayed in that light was really helpful to me through that character. Yeah, you know, Brendan, that's a that's definitely I think part of Brendan's primary role, right? Is to is to stand in the shoes of the reader and and ask the questions that, you know, perhaps some of the questions are technical like what is a pack or how does the money work, but some of the questions are moral. Should we be doing this? Is this the right thing to do? Shouldn't we be trying to fight, you know, these type of uh, the the type of sort of demagoguery that Dre ends up adopting. You know, Brendan also plays a second important role, which is an acknowledgement that not everyone will particularly like Dre, that there will be a large number of readers who just fundamentally oppose both his background as well as his current life, which he admits is to help corporations buy elections. And I know that uh, for some readers, Dre is very hard to swallow. But it's hard not to love Brendan. And so I think when you sort of balance the two of them out together and seeing, you know, I, 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 I was pretty, you know, I was, when I slashed the book in half, we lost a lot of Brendan's backstory, or at least Brendan still has a backstory, but I don't think it's quite as rich as, as it would have been. But what, what stayed and perhaps I think what ended up being amplified was the relationship between Dre and Brendan. I think, um, you know, just as a sheer percentage of the book, the two of them together, uh, either joking around or playing around or arguing or, you know, the full dynamic of their relationship, um, I think that comes through much, much stronger. That felt very important to me because it felt like a very, it was, in fact, through through the book, Dre's real only personal connection that he still held in in many ways. And that helped, as you said, Dre may not be... uh, the favorite character of many readers, but that helped make him more personable and more understandable in many ways, especially since we're spending the entire book, as you said, in Dre's head in many ways. So if you're along for the ride and need something to say, oh, this is not a character that's entirely, you know, disgusting to follow along with the entire way. So that really improved, it helped the book a lot. Exactly. Um, I do want to go back to, you mentioned cutting the book in half, basically, in the editing process, and I just wanted to say that I feel your pain on that. That had to be very very difficult just in writing some of the writings I've had to do or I've I tend to do the same thing where I will just write and I'll say okay I'm going to write and get it down and then edit down to what I want to get to 
And I always think that's the easiest way. And it is just so painful getting to the editing process. So I'm impressed that the, the final product came out so fully formed still. And maybe I'll get to read some of the, the deleted scenes, so to speak, <laughs> at some point. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's, uh, when I when I first gave it to my friends, people who I absolutely love and trust and would take their advice even if it conflicted with my own you know it, it hurt a little bit and it and it hurt a little bit because the book took about four years to write and so when they said cut it in half I literally thought I overwrote by two years and so it wasn't just the word count I was like oh my god I wasted two years of my life writing this book that you know and so um and so, you know, it hurt a little bit on that level. You know, I, I will say that it, it has been fortunate. We've been very fortunate that, um, you know, we sold the TV rights and that they want to use some of the stuff that didn't make it into the book to appear. So we may end up seeing some of that. Um, but, yeah, it, at that time when I had to cut and I had to cut over like four months, I, I just, you know, it, it was hard. Um, I'm tuning in for the TV rights once that went the show once that shows in. That's awesome. That's really, congratulations. I hadn't heard that before. That's really Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, what do you hope readers will take away from the novel? You kind of mentioned this in passing, but I want to dig in a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think now more than ever, it's a reminder that we need to pay attention and participate in local elections. We see time and time again that the federal government can't solve all of our solutions and shouldn't solve all of our solutions. And many times the states struggle to solve all, solve our problems. Um, you know, I think people disagree about whether this federal government and, or this state government in particular can do it. But regardless of where you stay on that, your judges, your district attorneys, your sheriffs are still being elected and they're still determining what our criminal justice system has looked like. And so, therefore, if you care about Black Lives Matters or you're saying All Lives Matter or whatever you're saying, your local elected officials are acting upon their community's will. And so being involved in local elections, I think, is really, really important. And so I hope that the book reminds people that local elections are important that local elected officials wield a lot of power, and that local elections are especially fragile because nobody votes in them and they're susceptible to dark money, and that sometimes the races are uncontested. Where can listeners find out more about your creative writing or your legal work? Oh, so that's a good question. So uh, I am on Twitter, which I think was a requirement of my contract. <laughs> so uh, I'm at Stephen H. Wright on Twitter. Um, also, uh, I've written essays for a couple places like Crime Reads and the New York Review of Books. Um, and I think we, I have a couple short stories coming out pretty soon, which we'll be announcing on, on uh, I think, on Twitter. So Great. Well, we'll uh, add you on Twitter once we get this published as well to get this the ether as well. Sign of the times that Twitter is where we do everything here. So, it is. Uh, and of course, we'll link out to the publisher's website where you can find Cody's of Carthage. I read it over the course of three short nights and enjoyed it immensely. Again, congratulations on your excellent book, Professor Wright, and thank you again for joining the podcast. 
thank you for having me. And, and also just as a reminder, I appreciate everyone who, who has been supportive and those of you who plan to buy the book, but your local independent bookstores are great places and they're still open and operating and they're trying to survive like many small businesses throughout the pandemic. So I want to give them a shout out, but also if you have an opportunity to visit one or to buy the book there, I think that would be great. And in addition, I'm very confident that the independent booksellers will ship it right to your door if you order it from them online or on the phone. I take this librarian's recommendation. I've read many, many, many books, and this one is certainly worth your time. Again, we've been speaking with Professor Stephen Wright about his new novel, Coyotes of Carthage. This is our first foray into the creative writing world, but be sure to check out our growing archive. I've spoken with UW Law faculty about topics ranging from corporate directorships to intellectual property to child support debt. You can find our full archive at wilawinaction.law.wisc.edu. We're a monthly podcast, so be sure to subscribe to our podcast on either Stitcher or the iTunes Store, or just listen to all of them on our website, wilawinaction.law.wisc.edu. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, happy researching.